0: Have you ever heard someone say, or maybe you've said these words yourself in regards to a relationship? It's complicated. Well, today we're going to look at a complicated relationship that all of us have to deal with in our lives from the Gospel of John, chapters 18 and 19. We're also going to look at what is one way when we've been betrayed that we are likely, if we're not careful, to become like the betrayer. And lastly, how do you show up when God doesn't show up the way you thought he would or should? Stay tuned. How do you define a successful life? If your answer can be summarized as earthly excellence and sacred significance, you're at the right place. Join host Stephanie Smith as she shares three keys unlocking a life of lasting purpose. Learn yourself, love God, and live connected. You'll become smarter about yourself, skilled in human dynamics, savvy about the Christian faith, and strengthened to pass this wisdom on to upcoming generations. And now, let's get started. Welcome back. And can I just say thank you so much for sharing some of your life and your time with me today. I do not take your participation for granted. And so I really appreciate you being here. And I know that you are going to get a lot out of today's episode. Hopefully you've been tracking along with us as we've been walking through the Gospel of John. But if not, hey, it's no problem. You can jump in with where we are today and then you can go back at a more convenient time and you can catch up on the previous episodes. When this episode airs for the first time, it will be the week of Advent, the first week of Advent. And traditionally, this is the week where the focus is on hope or promise. God had made a promise way back in the very beginning that a Savior would come into this world. His own Son would come into this world, and it was a hope and a promise that people held on to for millennia. And today we're able to be in this unique position where we both look back and we can, I'm not experienced firsthand of course, but we can look back and recognize the first advent and we can look forward to the second advent. And this is where we are smart to take a lesson from the people who were in that first category of looking for the Messiah to come. Because you know what? He didn't show up when or how or where they thought he would. And that might be something that we want to keep in mind for ourselves as well. When Jesus finally does show up on earth, people aren't expecting that it's going to look like this. They thought that he was going to come in a certain way, and and there was probably a lot of different variations in that. But they all had their paradigms of how the Messiah would show up. And when Jesus doesn't align with the plans of most people, they gave up Jesus rather than their plans. And that's something that we do not want to make that mistake of re- in repeating that mistake, that when God doesn't show up in our lives the way that we think he will or should, that we don't repeat that mistake of giving up on God and hanging on to our plans, but rather we have the willingness and the humility to let go of our plans and to still hold on to God. You know, one of the expectations that people had in Jesus' time was that this Messiah was going to come and he was going to deliver them from Roman occupation and political governance. Basically, they were expecting a Savior that was going to deliver them from these external circumstances that they were facing. They saw Roman occupation and control as being the biggest cause of their unhappiness and inability to live out God's commands. But God doesn't go along with their expectations. He came to provide salvation first and foremost from our internal conditions from what's going on in our heart. And it's interesting that in none of the four Gospels is there a single sermon ever recorded that Jesus talked and preached that was in opposition to the Roman government and political system. Not once. That's something we might want to keep in the back of our minds, especially as we're going into an election year next year here in the United States. But what we can all relate to is that we all have expectations and ideas of how God is going to show up in our lives, in our family, in our community, in our church, and in our world. And oftentimes our focus really is that He's going to, he's going to change an external circumstance and condition. But God, is always first and foremost about matters of the heart. And what we see, at least with one of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, is that when Jesus doesn't eventually come around to being the Messiah that Judas has envisioned, he turns to betrayal. Now, there's been a lot of speculation in different books or movies or whatever about what really motivated Judas. Did he betray Jesus thinking that he was going to try to force some political showdown and Jesus was finally going to have to step into this political powerful role and overthrow the Romans? Was it nothing but just jealousy and greed over Jesus' popularity? Was it a matter that he was still so angry because of what he considered the waste of the perfume that was used and? and and poured out in what he saw as an extravagance and an extravagant waste. And he's just so angry about this that he decides he's going to resort to selling Jesus out. The truth is, we don't know, because the Bible is actually pretty silent on Judas. It does say that Satan had entered into his heart, but Judas was not some puppet. This wasn't like God had said, okay, well, Judas, I'm going to single you out of all human beings and I'm going to overpower your free will and your agency, and you're going to be forced to betray Jesus even though it's not part of your own decision. That's not what happened. So Judas fully cooperated with the temptations that um, that Satan had put before him. But whatever Judas's motivation, he decides he's going to take matters into his own hands. And so after Jesus has had this, Passover week meal with his disciples, and, and they're done in this upper room, and they've all had this wonderful time together. Judas had been there for part of it, and then he had left, so he had not been present for the final round of teaching that Jesus had given to the rest of his disciples. They all leave, and they go to this garden, what we call the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Bible tells us that this was a familiar place where Jesus often went and often went with his disciples. And this is the place where Judas shows up with this band of armed guards. He doesn't just show up with two guards. He shows up with a whole entourage of guards. There's a couple of things for us to learn about this in our own lives. The first is this, betrayal usually comes in familiar Places. And I don't just mean geographical places, but I mean a person who knows the places of our heart, who knows our hopes, our dreams, our strengths, our weaknesses, our habits. A person who knows us will typically betray us in the places that are familiar to us. They will take advantage of the knowledge that they have about us and use that to try to trap us to betray us, to take us down a notch, to put us in our place, and all the other forms of betrayal that exist. And because we are honest people, we all recognize that we have as much of a capacity to be a betrayer as to be betrayed. And this is where we want to always be on guard, that we don't weaponize the information that we have about other people, that the more intimate that we know them, the more guarded we are with, with that knowledge so that we never get placed to the temptation to betray them in a small way or in a big way by weaponizing the knowledge that we have about them. A second thing that we see in this story is that betrayers usually get others to come along with them. They want other people to take their side, to hear them out, to align with them to turn against whoever it is that they are uh, betraying. And this is also where we have to be careful because isn't it tempting when we've been betrayed to want to let everybody know our side of the story? We want everybody to rally to us. And certainly there can be an appropriate time and place for sharing with certain people about something that's going on in our life. But that's very different from... We just want everybody to come and to side with us and to freeze out the other person or or group of people. Jesus actually models for us just the opposite. How does he face this betrayal in the garden? Well, the first thing is he faces it head on. There is no running away from it. He doesn't try to hide or minimize or anything. He faces it straight on. And that is an example for us is to face things that come against us like this head on. We don't need to justify it, minimize it, try to run from it, hide from it or anything. We can face it head on. The second thing that Jesus does is he protects others. He doesn't try to rally them all around him to to side with him. He says to the armed guards, he says, hey, you've come for me. Let these other people, referring to his other disciples, let them go. Okay, You don't have any bones to pick with them. Let them go. You've just come for me. Let's just focus on this. He does just the opposite of Judas in trying to round all these people up to take his side. He seeks to protect others from what's taking place not draw them into the the situation. Now, as we walk through these chapters of 18 and 19, you know, there are two themes that just really stand out. And these are themes that impact every single person's life on the planet. The first is fear and the second is truth. Fear and truth have a complicated relationship. They are very intertwined. I don't know if you've ever really thought about that before, fear and truth, but they are, again, they're very intertwined. They have a complicated relationship. So first let's talk about fear. What we see in, throughout Jesus' arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and even his burial is that everybody in the story— except for Jesus, is motivated, at least in part, by fear. That's right. The, the only one in this story, Jesus, who was going to be crucified, is, is the one who is walking without fear. Now, <clears throat> don't mistake that to think that Jesus just sailed through all of that without any suffering or questioning, because we know from other Gospels that he, he actually cried out when he was on the cross, you know, God, where are you? And we'll talk about that in, in another episode. I will point out on that. I do not believe what is often taught, which is that God had to turn his back on Jesus. But we'll save that, that for another time. Jesus had the emotions that he did not want to go through what he was going through. And again, we read about this in some of the other gospels where he was saying, God, if, if there's any other way, sign me up for it. Do we have a plan B? Can we pull out a plan C here? Because I am not eager to walk through what is coming. I believe it's in Isaiah that tells us that he despised the shame. That's a pretty strong word. So the fact that he was obedient to the death of the cross does not mean that he just skipped through it and that he was eager or that he was just somehow unaffected emotionally by it. That's not at all true. So there is a difference between the emotion of fear and acting motivated by fear. Where we see fear um, very, very early on is when Peter betrays Christ. Now, Peter's betrayal is different from Judas in that Judas's betrayal was planned and it was plotted. It wasn't some impromptu thing that he got up and decided to go do on the spur of the moment. It was deliberate. Peters was impromptu, it was spontaneous, it was a reaction to a situation for which he had no preparation. You know, even in our legal system today in the United States, there is an understanding that charges can differ based on intent. Did someone. Act out of um, an immediate situation, or did they do something with deliberate calculation? Because it matters what our motives are. The second group where we see fear is with the Jewish leaders. Now, we know from previous chapters, they were fearful of losing their power and their position, but they cloak that fear by saying, Oh, we're really afraid for the people. But their true motivation was that they were afraid of what um, coming, if people came to believe in Christ, what it was going to cost them. They weren't afraid for the people. They were afraid of losing their status with the people and losing their power and position politically. But they weren't afraid, oh, for the people. Does that sound familiar? Ever know any leaders who claim to be all about the people? We're doing this all for the good of the people. And it might even be not just in a political system, but it might be in a department or a company. Oh, we're enacting these policies for the benefit of our people. And all the people are sitting there kind of going, I don't know who you've been talking to, but this isn't going to help us out any. It looks to me like this policy is really going to help you all out. So this whole idea of people doing one thing and then claiming to do it for another reason has been around for quite a while. And sadly, yes, this even happens in churches where leaders are like, oh, we're, we're doing this for the good of the congregation. We're doing this for the good of the church. And you kind of look at it and go, huh, seems to me that that's got a lot of benefit for you. I'm not too sure how that is for everybody else. So that's nothing new when it comes to positions of power and influence, and that's exactly what the Jewish leaders were doing there. Another person that we see that was motivated by fear, again, not only fear, but definitely fear factored into this, and this is Pilate. Now, Pilate is this governor by Roman rule, and make no mistake, to be sent to this nation of Israel to be the governor in this area, this was not a plum political assignment. This was like a serious downgrade. Okay, we're going to send you over there to that backwater area that's just a pain in our side because those Jews just won't settle down and just accept that we are in charge and just go on and let us do our thing. Why do they keep trying to revolt? So Pilate's in this place, which he's at first annoyed by by what's going on with Jesus' trial. He fully recognizes the political power struggle that's really going on here. He ascertains very quickly that the Jewish leaders want Jesus gone because they're envious, not because they're really concerned about the welfare of their nation or of that Roman territory. So the Jewish leaders just begin by expecting he's just going to sign off. Okay, we've sent you the documentation. Here's the person. Just sign right here on the dotted line, please. You don't need to read the fine print. You don't need to ask any questions. Just sign here and we'll be up. Now, don't make any mistake that thinks that Pilate was somehow such a a moral individual, that the only people he ever had crucified or signed off on their crucifixion was if they were somebody that had really, truly proven themselves to be a threat to Rome. Uh, uh -uh. Pilate had a vicious and bloody history of crucifying hundreds, if not thousands of people and lining them up as a statement to say, don't mess with me. So why does he have any issue here signing off on the death of this one individual? Well, we don't know all of that for certain, except we might somehow guess that it is because god is at work in this situation and what we see with the jewish leaders is they become more and more um, hostile and they become more and more threatening to Pilate. they at first just show up again kind of asking you know just kind of in this um okay yeah it's no big deal just sign here for the crucifixion please And then as Pilate does not go along with them, and there's this political power struggle going back and forth, then they start upping their threats. And one of the things that they claim is they say, Jesus has said that he's the son of God. And when Pilate hears this, he's afraid. Why is he afraid? I mean, in today's time, if that happened, we would just tend to go, Yeah, right, bud. Okay, so this is someone who is not in touch with reality, and we would just kind of, you know, write him off. So why doesn't Pilate do that? Why doesn't he say, well, clearly that just means this guy's loony, and so um, even more of a reason to either, A, crucify him and get rid of him, or B, to just not crucify him because, okay, so he's wacky, but he seems to be pretty harmless. He doesn't respond either of those ways because of the Roman religious beliefs. Even though every single Roman didn't have the exact same religious beliefs, still there was these cultural beliefs that said there were many gods and goddesses, and what we would refer to today as Roman mythology. But there was genuine belief that there were gods and goddesses and you'd better stay on their good side or else they would get ticked off with you and they would decide to pick a fight with you and they would wipe out your your crops or they would give you a disease or any number of other things. But if you kept them on your good side, then you would have good health and prosperity and children and your crops would thrive and all of that. But complicated all of this was that the gods didn't all get along. So sometimes you kind of had to pick which one you were hoping you were going to be able to keep and stay in their favor. Because if they got into a fight with another god or goddess, well, you know, then you could kind of get caught in the crosshairs. It was a very fear-based religious system, incredibly fear-based. Fear is very powerful, though. Make no mistake that just because something is not right doesn't mean it's not powerful. And as part of those Roman mythologies and beliefs, there were times that they believed that a god or goddess would come to earth and take on the form of a human being. So there are lots of Roman stories about that and how about different people and about different places and how about the world and animals and different things even came into existence. So for Pilate, this is a very real threat. This is a very real concern. He doesn't just go back in and talk to Jesus and ask him where he's from because he's trying to you know, plot where he is on a geographical map of the Roman Empire. He is concerned at this point that he might be dealing with a deity who's just showed up in human form, which is ironic because that's exactly who he was dealing with. He was dealing with a deity in human form, and yet not as he thought it would ever be. This makes him even more eager to release Jesus. I mean, it's, but what happens is that the Jewish leader starts saying, if you release him, you are no friend of Caesar's. So they have run out of political leverage at this point, but they have played their trump card. They have pulled out the ace. And Pilate knows, okay, I don't know for certain that I'm dealing with a divine deity in here in human form, but I definitely know there's a Caesar. And I know that if he catches wind, that I am at all treasonous, that it will be, off with my head, literally or figuratively, and I don't want to stay in this backwater province as a governor forever. And so he caves in because of fear, and that's when he finally says, Okay, fine, you can have your crucifixion. We also see Joseph of Arimathea who comes to Pilate and asks for the body of Christ, and we see Nicodemus who comes with some burial spices, and they're motivated in part by fear not entirely they have enough courage to show up but they still have been secret followers well we definitely know joseph of arimathea has been a secret follower of jesus but he's scared because he doesn't want the jewish leaders to find out okay so we're going to actually pause here for today, and we're going to continue next week with with part two as we look at these chapters of 18 and 19 in the Gospel of John. And then we will be finishing up with the last two chapters in this gospel this month. Yes, we will close out the Gospel of John before 2024 hits us because I want us to really fully understand the second theme that we see in these two chapters, and that is truth, and then to see the relationship, this complicated relationship between fear and truth. So we're going to wrap up here for today. Make sure to come back next week and catch part two as we look at this complex relationship between fear and truth, and we look at betrayal, and we also look at the tension of life itself. All right, my friend, I want you to remember this. You have an impact that is immeasurable, eternal, and irreplaceable. See you next time. Thank you for listening. For information on speaking engagements and other resources, visit the website at stephaniepresents.com. Remember, learn yourself, love God, and live connected.